Stranger Things by Mildred Cram An O. Henry Memorial Award Prize Story of 1921 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Jyoti Tarawanath Stranger Things by Mildred Cram We were seated in the saloon of a small steamer, which plies between Naples and Trieste on irregular schedule. Outside, the night was thickly black, and a driving rain swept down the narrow decks. You Englishmen laugh at ghosts, the Corsican merchant said. In my country, we are less pretentious. Frankly, we are afraid. You too are afraid. And so you laugh. A difference, it seems to me, which lies not in the essence, but in the manner. Dr. Fenton smiled queerly. Perhaps. What do any of us know about it, one way or the other? ticklish business we poke a little too far beyond our can and get a shock that withers our souls cosmic force we stumble forward bleating for comfort and fall over a charged cable it may have been put there to hold us out or in aldo brandini the italian inventor was playing cards with a german engineer he lost the game to his opponent, and turning about in his chair, came into the conversation. You are talking about ghosts. I have seen them. Once in the Carso, again in the Campania near Rome. I met a company of Caesar's legionaries tramping through a bed of asphodels. The asphodels lay down beneath those crushing sandals, and then stood upright again, unharmed. The engineer shuffled the cards between short, capable fingers. Ghosts? Yes, I agree. There are such things, created out of our subconscious selves, mirages of the mind, photographic spiritual projections hereditary memories there are always explanations dr fenton poked into the bowl of his pipe with a broad thumb did any of you happen to know the english poet cecil grimshaw no i'll tell you a story about him if you care to listen a long story i warn you very curious very suggestive I cannot vouch for the entire truth of it, since I got the tale from many sources. A word here, a chance encounter there, and at last only the puzzling reports of men who saw Grimshaw out in Africa. He wasn't a friend of mine, or I wouldn't tell these things. Aldo Brandini's dark eyes softened. He leaned forward. Cecil Grimshaw? 
we latins admire his work more than any modern englishman the doctor tipped his head back against the worn red velvet of the lounge an oil lamp swinging from the ceiling seemed to isolate him in a pool of light outside the invisible sea raised astern hissing slightly beneath the driving impact of the rain i first heard of grimshaw the doctor began in my student days in london he was perhaps five years my senior just beginning to be famous not yet infamous but indiscreet enough to get himself talked about he had written a little book of verse vision of helen he called it i believe the oblique stare of hostile trojans helen coyified with flame menelaus love greater men than grimshaw had written of priam's tragedy his audacity called attention to his imperfect colorful verse his love of beauty his sense of the exotic the strange the unhealthy people read his book on the sly and talked about it in whispers it was indecent but it was beautiful at that time you spoke of cecil grimshaw with disapproval if you spoke of him at all or if you happened to be a prophet you saw in him the ultimate bomb beneath the victorian literary edifice and so he was i saw him once at the alhambra poetry in a top hat he wore evening clothes that were a little too elaborate a white camilla in his buttonhole and a thick lensed monocle on a black ribbon during the entree he stood up and surveyed the house from pit to gallery as if he wanted to be seen he was very tall and the ugliest man in england imagine the body of a lincoln the hands of a woman the jaw and mouth of disraeli an aristocratic nose unpleasant eyes and then that shock of yellow hair hyacinthine the curly locks of an insane virtuoso or a baby prodigy who's that i demanded grimshaw the chap who wrote the book about naughty helen la Balleline and the shepherd boy i stared everyone else stared the pit stopped shuffling and giggling to gaze at that prodigious monstrosity and people in the boxes turned their glasses on him grimshaw seemed to be enjoying it he spoke to someone across the aisle and smiled showing a set of huge white teeth veritable tombstones abominable i said but i got his book and read it 
he was the first englishman to dare break away from literary conventions of course he shocked england he was a savage aesthete i read the slim volume through at one sitting i was horrified and fascinated i met grimshaw a year later he was having a play produced at the lyceum the labyrinth with esther levinson as simonita she entertained for him at her house in chelsea and i got myself invited because i wanted to see the atrocious genius at close range he wore a lemon-colored vest and a lemon-yellow spats how do you do he said gazing at me out of those queer eyes of his i hear that you admire my work you have been misinformed i replied your work interests me because i am a student of nervous and mental diseases ah psychotherapy all of the characters in your poem the vision of helen or neurotics they suffer from morbid fears delusions hysteria violent mental and emotional complexities a textbook in madness grimshaw laughed you flatter me i'm attracted by neurotic types insanity has its source in the unconscious and we english are afraid of looking inward he glanced around the room with an amused and cynical look most of these people are as bad as my trojans dr fenton only they conceal their badness and it isn't good for them we talked for a few moments i amused him i think by my diagnosis of his helen's mental malady but he soon tired of me and his restless gaze went over my head searching for admiration esther levenson brought ellen terry over and he forgot me entirely in sparkling for the good lady showing his teeth shaking his yellow locks bellowing like a centaur the fellow is an ass i decided but when the labyrinth was produced i changed my mind there again was that disturbing loveliness it was a story of the passionate florence of lorenzo the magnificent and esther levinson drifted through the four long acts against a background of tuscan walls scarlet hangings oaths blood-spilling dark and terrible vengeance grimshaw took london by the throat and put it down on its knees then for a year or two he lived on his laurels lapping up admiration like a drunkard in his cups unquestionably esther levinson was his mistress since she presided over his house in cheney walk they say she was not the only string to his lute a jewess a greek poetess and a dancer from stockholm made up his amorous medley at that time scandalized society flocked to his drawing-room there to be received by the simonita herself 
wearing the blanched draperies and tragic pearls of his labyrinth he had made for her grimshaw offered no apologies he was the uncrowned laureate and kings can do no wrong he was painted by the young sergeant of course and by the aging whistler you remember the butterfly portrait of him in a yellow kimono leaning against a black mantle i for one think he was vastly amused by all this fury of admiration he despised it and fed upon it if he had been less great he would have been utterly destroyed by it even then i went to vienna and lost track of him for several years then i heard that he had married a dear friend of mine lady dagmar cooper one of the greatest beauties and perhaps the sternest prude in england she wrote me soon after that unbelievable meeting i have married cecil grimshaw i know you won't approve i do not altogether approve myself he is not like the men i have known not at all english but he intrigues me there is a sense of power behind his awfulness you see i know he is awful i think i will be able to make him look at things i mean visible material things my way we have taken a house in town and he has promised to behave no more chelsea parties no dancers no yellow waistcoats and chrysanthemums that was all very well for his student days now that he is a personage it will scarcely do i am tremendously interested and happy interested and happy she was a typical product of victoria's reign a beautiful creature whose faith was pinned to the most unimportant things class position a snobbish religion a traditional morality and her own place in an intricate little world of ladies and gentlemen god save us what was cecil grimshaw going to do in an atmosphere of titled bores bishops military men and cautious statesmen i could fancy him in his new town house struggling through some endless dinner party his cynical stone gray eyes sweeping up and down the table his lips curled in that habitual sneer his mind perhaps gone back to the red and blue room in chelsea where he had been wont to stand astride before the black mantle bellowing indecencies into the ears of witty modernists could he bellow any longer apparently not i heard of him now and then from this friend and that he was indeed behaving well he wrote nothing to shock the sensibilities of his wife's world a few fantastic short stories touched with a certain childish spirituality and that was all they say he bent his manners to hers a tamed centaur grazing with a milk-white doe he grew a trifle fat 
quite like a model English husband. He called Dagmar, my dear, and drove with her in the park at the fashionable hour. His hands crossed on the head of his cane, his eyes half-closed. She wrote me, I'm completely happy. So is Cecil. Surely he can have made no mistake in marrying me. You all know that this affectation of respectability did not last long, not more than five years, long enough for the novelty to wear off. The genius or the devil that was in Cecil Grimshaw made its reappearance. He was tossed out of Dagmar's circle like a burning rock hurled from the mouth of a crater. He fell into Chelsea again. As the Levinson had come back from the States, and was casting about for a play. She sought out Grimshaw, and with her presence, her grace and pallor and seduction lured him into his old ways. The leaves are yellow, he said to her, but still they dance in a south wind. The altar fires are ash, and grass has grown upon the temple floor. I have been away too long. Get me a pipe, you laughing dryad, and I'll play for you. He played for her, and all England heard. Dagmar heard, and pretended acquiescence. According to her lights, she was magnificent. She invited Esther Levinson to Broadenham, the Grimshaw place in Kent nor did she wince when the actress accepted. When I got back to England, Dagmar was fighting for a soul with all the weapons she had. I went to see her in her cool little townhouse, that house so typical of her, so untouched by Grimshaw, and looking at me with steady eyes, she said, I'm sorry Cecil isn't here. He is writing again, a play for Esther Levinson, who was Simonita, you remember? I promised you a ghost story. If it is slow in coming, it is because all these things have a bearing on the mysterious, the extraordinary things that happened. You probably knew about the last phase of Grimshaw's career. Who doesn't? There is something fascinating about the escapades of a famous man. But when he happens also to be a great poet, we cannot forget his very human sense. In them he is akin to us. Not all you have heard and read about Grimshaw's career is true. But the best you can say of him is bad enough. He squandered his own fortune first on Esther Levinson and the production of The Sunken City, and then stole ruthlessly from Dagmar that is, until she found legal ways to put a stop to it. We had passed into Edward's reign, and the decadence which ended the war had already set in. Grimshaw was the last of the promogranate school, the first of the bolder, more sinister futurists, a frank hedonist, an intellectual voluptuary. He set the pace, and a whole tribe of idolaters and imitators panted at his heels. 
they copied his yellow waistcoats his chrysanthemums his eyeglass his bellow nice young men otherwise sane let the hair grow long like the idols and profess themselves unbelievers unbelievers in what god save us ten years later most of them were wading through the mud of flanders believing something pretty definite one night i was called to the telephone by the grimshaw's physician i'll tell you his name because he has a lot to do with the rest of the story dr warum douglas warum an australian grimshaw has murdered a man he said briefly i want you to help me come to shaney walk take a cab hurry of course i went with a very clear vision of the future of dogma lady cooper to occupy my thoughts during that lurching drive through the slippery streets i knew that she was at broadenham holding up her head in seclusion grimshaw's house was one of a row of red brick buildings not far from the river dr warham himself opened the door to me i say this is an awful mess he said in a shocked voice the woman sent for me levinson the actress there's some mystery a dead man his head knocked in and grimshaw's sound asleep it may be hysterical but i can't wake him have a look before i get the police i followed him into the studio the famous pompeian room on the second floor i shall never forget the frozen immobility of the three actors in the tragedy esther levinson wrapped in a peacock blue scarfs stood upright before the black mantel her hands crossed on her breast cecil grimshaw was lying full length on a brick red satin couch his head thrown back his eyes closed the dead man sprawled on the floor face down between them two lamps made of sapphire glass swung from the gilded ceiling bowls of perfumed waxen flowers a silver statuette of a nude girl a tessellated floor strewn with rugs orange trees in tubs cigarette smoke hanging motionless in the still overheated air i stooped over the dead man who is he tucker leading man in the sunken city look at grimshaw will you we mustn't be too long i went to the poet the inevitable monocle was still caught and held by the yellow thatch of his thick brow he was breathing slowly grimshaw i said touching his forehead open your eyes he did so and i was startled by the expression of despair in their depths ah he said it's the psychopathologist how did this happen he sat up i'm convinced that he had been faking that drunken sleep and stared at the sprawling figure on the floor tucker quarrel with me he said i knocked him down and his forehead stuck against the table then he crawled over here and died from fright do you think he shuddered take him away warum will you i've got work to do suddenly esther levinson spoke in a flat voice without emotion it isn't true he stuck him with a silver statuette like this 
she made a violent gesture with both arms and before god in heaven i'll make him pay for it i will i will i will keep still i said sharply grimshaw looked up at her he made a gesture of surrender then he smiled simonita he said you're no better than the rest she sobbed ran over to him and went down on her knees twisting her arms about his waist there was a look of distaste in grimshaw's eyes he stared into a distraught face a moment then he freed himself from her arms and got to his feet i think i'll telephone to dagmar he said but warham shook his head i'll do that i'm sorry grimshaw the police will have to know while we're waiting for them you might write a letter to mrs grimshaw i'll see that she gets it in the morning i don't remember whether the poet wrote to dagmar then or not but surely you remember how she stayed by him during the trial still victorian in her black gown and veil mourning for the hope that was dead at least you remember his imprisonment the bitter invective of his enemies the defection of his followers the dark scandals that filled the newspapers offended public taste and destroyed cecil grimshaw's popularity in an england that had worshipped him esther levinson lied to save him that was the strangest thing of all she denied what she had told us that night of the tragedy tucker she said had been in love with her he followed her to grimshaw's house in chelsea and quarrelled violently with the poet his death was an accident grimshaw had not touched the statuette when he saw what had happened he telephoned to dr warham and then lay down on the couch apparently fainted there for he did not speak until dr fenton came warham perjured himself too for dagmar's sake he had not he swore heard the actress speak of a silver statuette or of revenge before god and since there was nothing to prove how the blow had been struck save the deep dent in tucker's forehead grimshaw was set free he had been a year in prison he drove away from the jail in a cab with a dr warham and when the crowd saw that he was wearing the old symbol a yellow chrysanthemum a hiss went up that was like a geyser of contempt and ridicule grimshaw's pallid face flushed but he lifted his hat and smiled into the host of faces as the cab jerked forward he went at once to brottenham years later warham told me about the meeting between those two the centaur and the milk-white doe dagmar received him standing and she remained standing all during the interview she had put aside a mourning for a dress made of some clear blue stuff and warham said as she stood in the breakfast room with a sun-flooded window behind her she was very lovely indeed grimshaw held out his hands but she ignored them then grimshaw smiled and shrugged his shoulders and said i have made two discoveries this past year 
that conventionalized religion is the most shocking evil of our day and that you my wife are in love with dr warham dagmar held her ground there was in her eyes a look of inevitable security she was mistress of the house proprietor of the land conscious of tradition prerogative position the man she faced had nothing except his tortured imagination for the first time in her life she was in a position to hurt him so she looked away from him to warham and confirmed his discovery with a smile full of pride and happiness my dear fellow grimshaw shouted clapping warham on the back i am confoundedly pleased we'll arrange a divorce for dagmar good heavens she deserves a decent future i'm not the sort for her i hate the things she cares most about and now i'm done for in england just to make it look conventional nice victorian english you understand you and i can go off to the continent together while dagmar's getting rid of me there'll be no trouble about that i'm properly dished besides i want freedom a new life beauty without having to buck this confounded distress of beauty sensation without being ashamed of sensation i want to drop out of sight reform now i'm being honest so they went off together as friendly as you please to france warham was still thinking of dagmar grimshaw was thinking only of himself he swaggered up and down the paris boulevards showing his tombstone teeth and staring at the women the europeans admire me he said to warham may england go to the devil he groaned i despise respectability my dear warham you and dagmar are well rid of me i see i am offending you here in paris you look nauseated most of the time let's go on to switzerland and climb mountains warham was nauseated they went to salvan and there a curious thing happened they were walking one afternoon along the road to martigny the valley was full of shadows like a deep green cup of purple wine high above them the mountains were tipped with flame grimshaw walked slowly he was a man of great physical laziness slashing his cane at the tasseled tips of crowding larches once when a herd of little goats trotted by he stood aside and laughed uproariously and the goatherd's dog bristling snapped in passing at his legs they were walking one afternoon along the road to martigny warham was silent full of bitterness and disgust they went on again and well down the spring-like coils of the descent of martigny they came upon the body of a man one of those wandering vendors of pocket-knives and key-rings scissors and cheap watches he lay on his back on a low bank by the roadside his hat had rolled off into a pool of muddy water dr warham saw as he bent down to stare at the face that the fellow looked like grimshaw not exactly of course the nose was coarser it had not that wellington spring at the bridge nor the curved nostrils but 
it might have been a dirty unshaven dead grimshaw lying there warren told me that he felt a shock of gratification before he heard the poet's voice behind him what's this a drunkard he shook his head and opened the dead man's shirt to feel for any possible flutter of life in the heart there was none and he thought if this were only grimshaw if the whole miserable business were only done with by jove grimshaw said the chap looks like me i thought i was the ugliest man in the world i know better do you suppose he's german or lombardian his hands are warm he must have been alive when the goat herd passed just now nothing you can do warham stayed where he was on his knees he tore his eyes away from the grotesque dead face and fixed them on grimshaw he told me that the force of his desire must have spoken in that look because grimshaw started and stepped back a pace gripping his cane then he laughed why not he said let this be me and i'll go on with that clanking hardware store around my neck it can be done can't it better for you and for dogma i'm not being philanthropic i'm looking not for a reprieve but for release no one knows this fellow in salvan he probably came up from the rhone and was on his way to chamonix what do you think was the matter with him heart dr warham answered well what do you say this peddler and i are social outcasts and there is dagmar in england weeping her eyes out because of divorce courts and more public washing of dirty linen you love her i don't why not carry this fellow to the ohoshi tonight after dark tomorrow when i have changed clothes with him we can throw him into the valley it's a good thousand feet or more would there be much left of that face for purposes of identification i think not you can take the mutilated body back to england i can go on to chamonix as he would have gone grimshaw touched the peddler with his foot pray that is exactly what they did the body hidden near the roadside until nightfall was carried through the woods to the ohoshi diswa that little plateau on the brink of the tremendous wall of rock which rises from the rhone valley to the heights near salvan there the two men left it and returned to their hotel to sleep in the morning they set out taking care that the proprietor of the hotel and the professional guide who hung about the village should know that they were going to attempt the descent of the wall to the valley the proprietor shook his head and said bonne chance messieurs the guide letting his small blue eyes rest for a moment on grimshaw's slow-moving hulk advised them gravely to take the road the tall gentleman will not arrive he remarked nonsense grimshaw answered they went off together laughing grimshaw was wearing his conspicuous climbing clothes tweed jacket yellow suit waistcoat knickerbockers and high-laced boots with hobnailed soles his green felt hat tipped at an angle 
was ornamented with a little orange feather. He was in tremendous spirits. He bellowed, made faces at scared peasant children in the village, swung a stick. They stopped at a barber shop in the place, and those famous hyacinthine locks were clipped. Borum insisted upon this, he told me, because the peddler's hair was fairly short, and they had to establish some sort of tonsorial alibi. When the floor of the little shop was thick with the sheared petals, Grimshaw shook his head, brushed off his shoulders, and smiled. It took twenty years to create that visible personality, and behold, a Swiss barber destroys it in twenty minutes. I am no longer a living poet. I am already an immortal, halfway up the flowery slopes of Olympus, impatient to go the rest of the way. Shall we be off? By all means, Warham said. They found the body where they had hidden it the night before, and in the shelter of a little grove of larches, Grimshaw stripped and then reclothed himself in the peddler's coarse and soiled underlinen, the worn corduroy trousers, the flannel shirt, short coat, an old black velvet hat. Warham was astounded by the beauty and strength of Grimshaw's body. Like the peddler, he was blonde-skinned, thin-waisted, broad of back. Grimshaw shuddered as he helped to clothe the dead peddler in his own fashionable garments. Death, he said. Ugh! How ugly! How terrifying! How abominable! They carried the body across the plateau. The height where they stood was touched by the sun, but the valley below was still immersed in shadow, a broad purple shadow threaded by the shining roan. Well, Warham demanded, are you eager to die? For this means death for you, you know. A living death, Grimshaw said. He glanced down at the replica of himself. A convulsive shudder passed through him from head to foot. His face twisted, his eyes dilated. He made a strong effort to control himself and whispered, I understand. Go ahead. Do it. I can't. It's like destroying me, myself. I can't. Do it. Warham lifted the dead body and pushed it over the edge. Grimshaw, trembling violently, watched it fall. I think, from what Dr. Warham told me many years later, that the poet must have suffered the violence and terror of that plummet drop, must have felt the tearing clutch of pointed rocks in the wall face, must have known the leaping upward of the earth, the wine wind in his bursting ears, the dizzy spinning, the rendering, obliterating impact at last. The peddler lay in the valley. Grimshaw stood on the brink of the wall. He turned and saw Dr. Warham walking quickly away across the plateau without a backward glance. They had agreed that Warham was to return at once to the village and report the death of his friend, Mr. Grimshaw. The body, they knew, would be crushed beyond recognition, a bruised and broken fragment, like enough to Cecil Grimshaw, 
to pass whatever examination would be given it grimshaw himself was to go through the wood to the high road then on to finhart and chamonix and into france he was never again to write to dagmar to return to england or to claim his english property can you imagine his feelings deprived of his arrogant personality his fame his very identity clothed in another man's dirty garments wearing about his neck a clattering peddler's outfit upon his feet the clumsy boots of a peasant grimshaw the exquisite futurist the daffodil apostle of the aesthetic he stood there for a moment looking after douglas warren once in a panic he called but warren disappeared between the larches without apparently having heard grimshaw wavered unable to decide upon the way to the high road he could not shake off a sense of loneliness and terror as if he himself had gone whirling down to his death like a man who comes slowly back from the effects of ether he perceived one by one the familiar aspects of the landscape the delicate flowers powdering the plateau the tasseled larches on the slope the lofty snow peaks still suffused with rosy morning light this then was the world this clumsy being moving slowly toward the forest was himself not cecil grimshaw but another man his mind sought clumsily for a name pierre no not pierre too commonplace was he still fastidious no then pierre by all means pierre pillou that would do pillou a name suggestive of a good amiable fellow honest and slow when he got down into france he would change his identity again grow a beard buy some decent clothes a belouardier gay perverse witty the thought delighted him and he hurried through the forest anxious to pass through salvan before dr warham got there he felt extraordinarily light and exhilarated now intoxicated vibrant his spirit soared almost he heard the rushing of his old self forward toward some unrecognizable and beautiful freedom when he struck the road the sun was high and it was very hot little spirals of dust kicked up at his heels he was not afraid of recognition happening to glance at his hands he became aware of their whiteness and stooping rubbed them in the dust then a strange thing happened another herd of goats trotted down from the grassy slopes and spilled into the roadway and another dog with the lolling tongue and wagging tail wove in and out shepherding the little beasts they eddied about grimshaw brushing against him their moonstone eyes full of a vague terror of that barking guardian at their heels the dog drove them ahead circled and with a low whine came back to grimshaw leaping up to lick his hand 
Grimshaw winced, for he had never had success with animals. Then, with a sudden change of mood, he stooped and caressed the dog's head. A good fellow, he said in French to the goatherd. The goatherd looked at him curiously. Not always, he answered. He is an unpleasant beast with most strangers. For you, he seems to have taken a fancy. What have you got there? Any two-bladed knives? Grimshaw started and recovered himself with knives. Yes, all sorts. The goatherd fingered his collection, trying the blades on his broad thumb. You come from France, he said. Grimshaw nodded. From Lyon. I thought so. You speak French like a gentleman. Grimshaw shrugged. This is usual in Lyon. The peasant paid for the knife, he fancied, placing two francs in the poet's palm. Then he whistled to the dog and set off after his flock. But the dog, whining and trembling, followed Grimshaw and would not be shaken off until Grimshaw had pelted him with small stones. I think the poet was strangely flattered by this encounter. He passed through Salwan with his head in the air, challenging recognition. But there was no recognition. The guide who had said, The tall monsieur will not arrive, now greeted him with a fraternal, How is trade? Very good, thanks, Grimshaw said. Beyond the village, he quickened his pace, and easing the load on his back by putting his hands under the leather straps, he swung toward Finhout. Behind him, he heard the faint ringing of the church bells in Salwan. Warham had reported the tragedy. Grimshaw could fancy the excitement. The priest, hurrying toward the wall, with his crucifix in his hands, the barber a quiver with morbid excitement the stolid guide not at all surprised rather gratified preparing to make the descent to recover the body of the tall monsieur who had after all arrived the telegraph wires were already humming with the message in a few hours dagmar would know he laughed aloud the whole road spun beneath him his hands, pressed against his body by the weight of the leather straps, were hot and wet. He could feel the loud beating of his heart. His senses were acute. He had never before felt with such gratification the warmth of the sun, or known the ecstasy of motion. He saw every flower in the road-bank, every small glacial brook, every new confirmation of the snow-clouds hanging above the ragged peaks of the Argentaire. He sniffed with delight the pungent wind from off the glaciers, the short, warm puffs of grass-scented air from the fields in the valley of Trient. He noticed the flight of birds, the lazy swinging of pine boughs, the rainbow spray of waterfalls. Once he shouted and ran, mad with exuberance again he flung himself down by the roadside and lying on his back sang outrageous songs and laughed and slapped his breast with both hands that night 
he came to Chamonix and got lodging in a small hotel on the skirts of the town. His spirits fell when he entered the room. He put the peddler's pack on the floor and sat down on the narrow bed, suddenly conscious of an enormous fatigue. His feet burned, his legs ached, his back was raw where the heavy pack had rested. He thought, what am I doing here? I've nothing but the few hundred pounds Warren gave me. I'm alone, dead and alive. He scarcely looked up when the door opened and a young girl came in, carrying a pitcher of water and a coarse towel. She hesitated and said rather prettily, You will be tired, perhaps? Grimshaw felt within him the tug of the old personality. He stared at her, suddenly conscious that she was a woman, and that she was smiling at him, charming in her way, bare arms, a little black bodice laced over a white waist, straight blonde hair, braided thickly and twisted around her head, a peasant, but pretty. You see, his desire was to frighten her, as he most certainly would have frightened her had he been true to Cecil Grimshaw. But the impulse passed, leaving him sick and ashamed. He heard her saying, a sad thing occurred today down the valley. A gentleman, uh, Salvan, a very famous gentleman, and they have telegraphed his wife. I heard it from Simon Ravel. It seems that the gentleman was smashed to bits. Barissa, Matthew. Grimshaw began to tremble. Yes, yes, he said irritably. But I'm tired. Little one, go out and shut the door. The girl gave him a startled glance, frightened at last, but for nothing more than the last look in his eyes. He raised his arms, and she fled with a little scream. Grimshaw sat for a moment, staring at the door. Then, with a violent gesture, he threw himself back on the bed, buried his face in the dirty pillow, and wept as a child weeps. Until, just before dawn, he fell asleep. As far as the public knows, Cecil Grimshaw perished on the wall, perished and was buried at Broadenham beneath the pyramid of chrysanthemums, perished and became an English immortal, his sins erased by his unconscious sacrifice, perished and was forgiven by Dagmar. Yet hers was the victory. He belonged to her at last. She had not buried his body at Broadenham, but she had buried his work there. He could never write again. During those days of posthumous whitewashing, he read the papers with a certain contemptuous eagerness. Some of them he crumpled between his hands and threw away. He hated his own image staring balefully from the first page of the illustrated reviews. He despised England for honouring him. Once, happening upon a volume of The Vision of Helen, the first edition illustrated by Beardsley, in a bookstall at Aix-les-Bains, he read it from cover to cover. Poor stuff, he said to the bookseller, tossing it down again. Gimme Arsène Lupin. And he paid two sous for a paper-covered, dog-eared, much-thumbed copy of the famous detective story, 
not because he intended to read it but in payment for his hour of disillusionment then he slung his pack over his shoulders and tramped out into the country he laughed aloud at the thought of helen and her idolaters a poetic hoax overripe words seductive sounds nonsense surely i can do better than that today he thought he saw two children working in a field and called to them if you will give me a cup of cold water he said i'll tell you a story gladly monsieur the boy put down his spade went to a brook which threaded the field and came back with an earthenware jug full to the brim the little girl stared gravely at grimshaw while he drank grimshaw wiped his mouth with the back of his hand what story shall it be he demanded the little girl said quickly the black king and the white princess on the beast who lived in the wood not that one the boy cried tell us about a battle i will sing about life grimshaw said it was hot in the field a warm sweet smell rose from the spaded earth and nearby the brook rustled through the grass like a beautiful silver serpent grimshaw sat cross-legged on the ground and words spun from his lips simple words and he sang of things he had recently learned the gaiety of birds the strength of his arms the scent of dusk the fine crystal of a young moon wind in a field of wheat at first the children listened then because he talked so long the little girl leaned slowly over against his shoulder and fell asleep while the boy fingered the knives jangled the keyrings clipped grass stalks with the scissors and wound the watches one after the other the sun was low before grimshaw left them when you're grown up he said remember that pierre pilou sang to you of life oui monsieur the boy said politely but i should like a watch grimshaw shook his head the song is enough thereafter he sang to any one who would listen to him i say that he sang i mean of course that he spoke his verses it was a minstrel's simple improvisation but there are people in the villages of southern france who still recall that ungainly shambling figure he had grown a beard it crinkled thickly hiding his mouth and chin he laughed a great deal he was not altogether clean and he slept wherever he could find a bed in farmhouses cheap hotels haylofts stables open fields warum's few hundred pounds were gone the poet lived by his wits and his gift of song and for the first time in his remembrance he was happy then one day he read in lumeta that ada rubinstein was to play the labyrinth in paris grimshaw was in potiers he borrowed 300 francs from the proprietor of a small cafe in the rue connaught left his pack as security 
and went to Paris. Can you imagine him in the theatre? It was the Odeon, I believe, conscious, curious, amused glances. A peasant, bulking conspicuously in that scented auditorium, when the curtain rose, he felt again the familiar pain of creation. A rush of hot blood surged around his heart. His temples throbbed. His eyes filled with tears. Then the flood receded and left him trembling with weakness. He sat through the rest of the performance without emotion of any sort. He felt no resentment no curiosity. This was the last time he showed any interest in his old existence. He went back to Poitiers and then took to the road again. People who saw him at that time have said that there was always a pack of dogs at his heels. Once a fashionable spaniel followed him out of Lyons and he was arrested for theft. You understand he never made any effort to attract the little fellows. They joined on, as it were, for the journey. And it was a queer fact that after a few miles they always whined, as if they were disappointed about something, and turned back. He finally heard that Dagmar had married Worm. She had waited a decent interval, Victorian to the end. A man who happened to be in Marseille at the time told me that that vagabond poet, Pilieu, appeared in one of the cafes, roaring drunk, and recited a marriage poem, obscene, vicious, terrific. A crowd came in from the street to listen. Some of them laughed. Others were frightened. He was an ugly brute, well over six feet tall, with a blond beard, a hooked nose, and a pair of eyes that saw beyond reality. He was fascinating. He could turn his eloquence off and on like a tap. He sat in a drunken stupor, glaring at the crowd, until someone shouted, Eh bien, Pilieu, you were saying? Then the deluge. He had a peasant's acceptance of the elemental facts of life. It was raw, that hymn of his. The women of the streets, who had crowded into the café, listened with a sort of terror. They admired him. One of them said, Pilu's wife betrayed him. He lifted his glass and drank. No, ma petite, he said politely. She buried me. That night, his pack was stolen from him. He was too drunk to know or to care. They say that he went from café to café, paying for wine with verse and getting it too. At his heels, a crowd of loafers, frowsy women and dogs, his hat gone, his eyes mad, a trickle of wine through his beard, bellowing, bellowing again, the untamed centaur cheated of the doe. And now, perhaps, I can get back to the reasons for this story and I'm almost at the end of it. In the most obscure alley in Marseilles, there is a café frequented by sailors. 
riff-raff from the waterfront and thieves grimshaw appeared there at midnight a woman clung to his arm she had no eyes for anyone else her name i believe was marie a very humble magdalen of that tragic backwater of civilization putting a cheek against grimshaw's arm she listened to him with a curious patience as one listens to the eloquence of the sea this is no place for thee he said to her leave me now ma petite but she laughed and went with him imagine that room foul air sanded floor kerosene lamps an odor of bad wine tobacco and stale humanity grimshaw pushed his way to a table and sat down with a surly gascon and an enormous negro from some american ship in the harbor they brought the poet wine but he did not drink it sat staring at the smoky ceiling assailed by a sudden sharp vision of dagmar and warham at broadenham alone together for the first time perhaps on the terrace in the starlight perhaps in dagmar's bright room which had always been scented warm remote he had been reciting of course in french now he broke abruptly into english no one but the american negro understood the proprietor shouted hi there pilio no gibberish the woman her eyes on grimshaw's face said warningly shh he speaks english he is clever this poet pay attention and the negro startled jerked his drunken body straight and listened i don't know what grimshaw said it must have been a poem of home the bitter longing of an exile for familiar things at any rate the negro was touched he was a louisianian a son of new orleans he saw the gentleman where you and i perhaps would have seen only a maudlin savage there is no other explanation for the thing that happened quiet grimshaw said and her fury receded before his glance she melted acquiesced smiled then grimshaw smiled too and putting the glass to rights with a leisurely gesture said cabbage son of pig and flipped the dregs into gascon's face the fellow groaned and leaped grimshaw didn't stir he was too drunk to protect himself but the negro saw what was in the gascon's hand he kicked back his chair stretched out his arms too late the gascon's knife intended for grimshaw sliced into his heart he coughed looked at the man he had saved with a strange questioning and collapsed grimshaw was sobered instantly they say he broke the gascon's arm before the crowd could separate them then he knelt down by the dying negro turned him gently over and lifted him in his arms supporting that ugly bullet head against his knee the negro coughed again and whispered a sort come in boss grimshaw said simply thank you 
I'm scared, boss. That's all right. I will see you through. I'm done, boss. Is it hard? Yes, sir. Hold my hand. That's right. Nothing to be afraid of. The Negro's eyes fixed themselves on Grimshaw's face. A somber look came into their depths. I'm going, Baz. Grimshaw lifted him again. As he did so, he was conscious of feeling faint and dizzy. The Negro's blood was warm on his hands and wrists, but it was not wholly that. He had a sensation of rushing forward, of pressure against his eardrums, a violent nausea, the crowd of curious faces, blurred, disappeared. He was drowning in a noisy darkness. He gasped, struggled, struck out with his arms, shouted, went down in that suffocating flood of unconsciousness. Opening his eyes after an indeterminate interval, he found himself in the street. The air was cool after the fetid stateliness of that room. He was still holding the Negro's hand, and above them the stars burned, remote and calm, like beacon lamps in a dark harbor. The Negro whimpered. I don't know the way, boss. I'm lost. Where is your ship? You port near the fort. They walked together through the silent streets. I say that they walked. It was rather that Grimshaw found himself on the quay, the Negro still at his side. A few prowling sailors passed them, but for the most part the waterfront was deserted. The ships lay side by side, an intricate tangle of both spirits and rigging, masts and chains. Around them the water was black as basalt, only that now and again a spark of light was struck by the faint lifting of the current against the immovable hulls. The negro shuffled forward, peering. A lantern flashed on one of the big schooners. Looking up, Grimshaw saw the name, Anne B. B. New Orleans. A querulous voice somewhere on the deck demanded, that you, Richardson? And then angrily, This damn place, dark as hell. Who's there? Grimshaw answered, One of your crew. The man on deck stared down at the quay a moment. Then, apparently having seen nothing, he turned away, and the lantern bobbed aft like a drifting ember. The negro mourned, holding both hands over the deep wound in his breast, he slowly climbed the side ladder, turned once to look at Grimshaw, and disappeared. Grimshaw felt again the rushing darkness. Again he struggled, and again, opening his eyes after a moment of blankness, he found himself kneeling on the sanded floor of the café, holding the dead negro in his arms. He glanced down at the face. Astounded by the look of placid satisfaction in those wide-open eyes, the smile of recognition, of gratification, of some nameless and magnificent 
content. The woman, Marie, touched his shoulder. The fellow is dead, monsieur. We had better go. Grimshaw followed her into the street. He noticed that there were no stars. A bitter wind, forerunner of the implacable mistral, had come up. The door of the cafe slammed behind them, muffling a sudden uproar of voices that had burst out with his going. Grimshaw had a room somewhere in the old town. He went there, followed by the woman. He thought, I'm mad, mad. He was frightened, not by what had happened to him, but because he could not understand. Nor can I make it clear to you. Since no explanation is final when we are dealing with the inexplicable. When they reached his room, Marie lighted the kerosene lamp and, soothing down her black hair with both hands, said simply, I stay with you. You must not, Grimshaw answered. I love you, she said. You are a great man, Sissa. That's that. Besides, I must love someone. I mean, do for someone. You think that I like pleasure? Ah, perhaps. I'm young. But my heart follows you. I stay here. Grimshaw stared at her without hearing. I opened the door. I went beyond. I am perhaps mad, perhaps privileged, perhaps what they have always called me, an incorrigible poet. Suddenly he jumped to his feet and shouted, I went a little way with the soul, victory, eternity. The woman, Mari, put her hands on his shoulders and pushed him back into his chair again. She thought, of course, that he was drunk. So she attempted a simple seduction, striving to call attention to herself by the coquetries of her kind. Grimshaw pushed her aside and lay down on the bed with his arms crossed over his eyes. Had he witnessed the soul's first uncertain steps into a new state? One thing he knew. He had himself suffered the confusion of death, and had shared the desperate struggle to penetrate the barrier between the mortal and the immortal, the known and the unknown, the real and the incomprehensible. With that realization, he stepped finally out of his personality into that of the mystic philosopher, Pierre Pilleux. He heard the woman, Marie, saying, Let me stay, I am unhappy. And without opening his eyes, simply making a brief gesture, he said, Eh bien, and she stayed. She never left him again. In the years that followed, Wherever Grimshaw was, there was also Marie, little, swarthy, broad of cheek and hip, unimaginative, faithful. She had a passion for service. She cooked for Grimshaw, knitted woolen socks for him, brushed and mended his clothes, watched out for his health, often. I am convinced she stole for him. As for Grimshaw, he didn't know that she existed, beyond the fact that she was there and that she made material existence endurable. He never again 
new physical love that i am sure of for i have talked with murray he was good to me she said but he never loved me and i believe her that night of the negro's death grimshaw stood in a wilderness of his own he emerged from it a believer in life after death he preached this belief in the slums of marseilles it began to be said of him that his presence made death easy that the touch of his hand steadied those who were about to die feverish terrified reluctant they became suddenly calm wistful and passed quietly as one falls asleep send for pierre pilou became a familiar phrase in the old town i do not believe that he could have touched these simple people had he not looked the part of prophet and saint the old grimshaw was gone in his place an emaciated fanatic unconscious of appetite unaware of self with burning eyes and tangled beard that finished ugliness turned spiritual a self-flagellated esthete he claimed that he could enter the shadowy confines of the next world not heaven not hell a neutral ground between the familiar earth and an inexplicable territory of the spirit here he said the dead suffered bewilderment they remembered desired and regretted life they had just left without understanding what lay ahead so far he could go with them so far and no further personal immortality is the most alluring hope ever dangled before humanity all of us secretly desire it none of us really believe in it as you say all of us are afraid and some of us laugh to hide our fear grimshaw wasn't afraid now did he laugh he knew and you remember his eloquence seductive words poignant delicious memorable words in his chelsea days he had made you sultry with hate now as pierre pilou he made you believe in the shining beauty of the indestructible of the unconquerable dead you saw them a host of familiar figures walking fearlessly away from you toward the brightness of a distant horizon you heard them murmuring together as they passed out of sight going forward to share the common and ineffable experience well the pagan had disappeared in the psychic cecil grimshaw's melancholy and pessimism his love of power his delight in cruelty in beauty in the erotic the violent the strange had vanished pierre pelo was a humanitarian cecil grimshaw never had been grimshaw had revolted against ugliness as a dilettante objects to the mediocre in art pierre pelo was conscious of social ugliness having become aware of it he was a potent rebel he began to write in french spreading his revolutionary doctrine 
of facile spiritual reward he splintered purgatory into fragments what he offered was an earthly paradise humanity given eternal absolution freed of fear prejudice hatred above all of fear and certain of endless life now that we have entered the cosmic era we look back at him with understanding then he was a radical and an atheist of course he had followers seekers after eternity who drank his promises like thirsty wanderers come upon a spring in the desert to some of them he was good to some a mystic to some a healer to some and they were the ones who finally controlled his destiny he was simply a dangerous lunatic two women in marseilles committed suicide they were followers disciples whatever you choose to call them at any rate they believed that where it was so simple a matter to die it was foolish to stay on in a world that had treated them badly one had lost a son the other a lover one shot herself the other drowned herself in the canal and both of them left letters addressed to pilio enough to damn him in the eyes of authority he was told that he might leave france or take the consequences a mild enough warning but it worked he dare not provoke an inquiry into his past so he shipped on board a small mediterranean steamer as fireman and disappeared no one knew where two years later he reappeared in africa mari was with him they were living in a small town on the rim of the desert near biskra grimshaw occupied a native house a mere hovel flat-roofed sun-baked bare as a hermit cell mari had hired herself out as a femme de chambre in the only hotel in the place i watched over him she told me and believe me monsieur he needed care he was thin as a ghost he had starved more than once during those two years he told me to go back to france to seek happiness for myself but for me happiness was with him i laughed and stayed i loved him magnificently monsieur grimshaw was writing again in french and his work began to appear in the parisian journals a strange poetic prose impregnated with mysticism it was grimshaw sublimated i saw it myself although at that time i had not heard warham's story the french critics saw it this pilio is as picturesque as the english poet grimshaw the style is identical warham saw it he read everything that pilio wrote with eagerness with terror finally driven by curiosity he went to paris got pilio's address from the editor of philblasts and started for africa grimshaw is a misty figure at the last you see him faintly an exile racially featureless wearing a dirty white native robe his face wrinkled by exposure to the sun his eyes burning mari says that he prowled about the village at night whispering to himself 
his head thrown back, pointing his beard at the stars. He wrote in the cool hours before dawn, and later, when the village quivered in heat fumes and he slept, Marie posted what he had written to Paris. One day he took a head between his hands and said very gently, Why don't you get a lover? Take life while you can. You say there is eternal life, she protested. Nandu tepa. But you must be rich in knowledge. Put flowers in your hair and place your palms against a lover's palms and kiss him with generosity, ma petite. I am not a man. I am a shadow. Marie slipped her arms around him and, standing on tiptoe, put her lips against his. Je t'aime, she said simply. His eyes deepened. There flashed into them the old mad humour, the old vitality, the old passion for beauty. The look faded, leaving his eyes, like flames that are quenched. Marie shivered, covered her face with her hands and ran out. There was no blood in him, she told me. He was like a spirit, a ghost, so meagre, so wan, waxen hands, yellow flesh, and those eyes in which, monsieur, the flame was quenched. And this is the end of the curious story. Warren went to Biskra, and from there to the village where Grimshaw lived. Grimshaw saw him in the street one evening and followed him to the hotel. He lingered outside until Warham had registered at the bureau and had gone to his room. Then he went in and sent word that P. P. L. O. was below and ready to see Dr. Warham. He waited in the garden at the back of the hotel. No one was about. A cat slept on the wall. Overhead, the arch of the sky was flooded with orange light. Dust lay on the leaves of the potted plants and bushes. It was breathless, hot, quiet. He thought, Warham has come because Dagmar is dead, or the public has found me out. Warham came immediately. He stood in the doorway a moment, staring at the grotesque figure which faced him. He made a terrified gesture, as if he would shut out what he saw. Then he came into the garden, steadying himself by holding on to the backs of the little iron garden chairs. The poet saw that Warham had not changed so very much. A little grey hair in that thick black mop, a few wrinkles, a rather stodgy look about the waist, no more. He was still Warham, neat, self-satisfied, essentially English. Grimshaw strangled a feeling of aversion and said quietly, Well, Warham, how do you do? I call myself Pilio now. Warham ignored his hand. Leaning heavily on one of the chairs, he stared with a passionate intentness. Grimshaw, he said at last. Why, yes, Grimshaw answered. Didn't you know? Warham licked his lips. In a whisper, he said, I killed you in Switzerland six years ago. Killed you, you understand? Grimshaw touched his breast with both hands. You lie. Here I am. You are dead. Dead? Before God, I swear it. Dead? 
Grimshaw felt once more the onrushing flood of darkness. His thoughts flashed back over the years. The war, his suffering, the dog, the song in the field, the negro, the door that opened, the stars, his own flesh fading into spirit, into shadows. Dead? he demanded again. Warren's eyes wavered. He laughed unsteadily and looked behind him. Strange, he said. I thought I saw. He turned and went quickly across the garden into the hotel. Grimshaw called once in a loud voice, Warham! But the doctor did not even turn his head. Grimshaw followed him, overtook him, touched his shoulder. Warham paid no attention. Going to the bureau, he said to the proprietor, You told me that a Monsieur Pilieu wished to see me. Oui, monsieur, he was waiting for you in the garden. He's not there now. But just a moment ago. I'm here, Grimshaw interrupted. Dr. Warham straightened his shoulders. Ah, he said, disappeared. Exactly. And passing Grimshaw without a glance, he went upstairs. Grimshaw spoke to the proprietor. But the little man bent over the desk and began to write in an account book. His pen went on scratching, inscribing large, flourishing numbers in a neat column. Grimshaw shrugged and went into the road. The crowds paid no attention to him, but then they never had. A dog sniffed at his heels, whined, and thrust cold nose into his hand. He went to his house. I'll ask Mary, he thought. She was sitting before a mirror, her hands clasped under her chin, smiling at herself. She had put a flower in her hair. Her lips were parted. She smiled at some secret thought. Grimshaw watched her a moment. Then, with a leap of his heart, he touched her shoulder. And she did not turn, did not move. He knew. He put his fingers on her cheek, her neck, the shining braids of her coarse black hair. Then he walked quickly out of the house, out of the village, toward the desert. Two men joined him. One of them said, I have just died. They went on together, their feet whispering in the sand, walking in a globe of darkness, until the stars came out. Then they saw one another's pale faces, and eager, frightened eyes. Others joined them, and others, men, women, a child. Some wept, and some murmured, and some laughed. Is this death? Where now, brother? Grimshaw thought. The end. What next? Beauty? Love? Illusion? Forgetfulness? He clasped his hands behind his back, lifted his face to the stars, walked steadily forward with the company of the dead, into the desert, out of the story at last. End of The Stranger Things by Mildred Graham Recording by Jyoti Taravanath